the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Welcome to the Country Hour. More protests to do with water buybacks in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. This time at three regional towns in New South Wales. We'll cross to one of those shortly for you. We'll also cross to Pakenham where the sale yards are going to go. An institution in that town on the outskirts of Melbourne will be no longer as of next year. Why close the Pakenham sale yards? The operators will tell you shortly on the program. And a new president for the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria. After a mass resignation and a new organisation was created, what does the new leader of those that remain have to say about the state of his industry? and his position in it all. All of that and more coming up today on The Country Hour. But first, rural news with Emma Field. Emma. G'day, Warwick. A week of forecast rain is going to pay havoc with Victorian grain harvest, but in northern New South Wales, large rainfall has been a godsend for cotton producers. There's been a last-minute rush to get cotton in the ground ahead of the falls, and the orders for seed continue. Extension and market development lead at cotton seed distributors, Peter White, says this week of rain has the ability to turn around the fortunes of the season. Look, it'll allow the, the dry land growers in particular to get a, a good start to the year. There was quite a few of them uh, that were very optimistic last week and started planting uh, seed dry. Uh, so they'll be off to a good start and we'll see further plantings now uh, when it dries out enough um, with falls in that 60 to 100 plus millimetres, it'll fill up quite a few profiles and give them a really good start. And still in New South Wales, grain growers in western parts of the state have plenty to celebrate. There have been reports of 130 millimetres or more for areas like Boomai, west of Moree, where Archie Wilson manages a cropping operation. Pretty pretty amazing. We sort of only had um, 30% of our winter crop area in for the year. Sort of, it was very, very dry from October through to October, the 12 months, we only had about 150 mil of rainfall. So, yeah, we've sort of been very dry. And three weeks ago, you could have asked anyone and, yeah, it wasn't really looking like there was going to be any summer crop at all. So, it's, yeah, it's take a, taken a huge turnaround, which is great to see, which is good. And Western Australia's grain harvest is expected to be pretty much done and dusted by the end of December, with just over 14.5 million tonnes delivered to silos across the state's agricultural region. Michael Lamond is the author of the Grain Industry of Western Australia Crop Report and says the vast majority of farmers will be finished by Christmas. Yeah, most of the crop is actually not yielding quite as well as you know everyone had thought. It's just you know that severe, sharp finish at the end but, you know, rain, warm temperatures, you know, just, just really took the top off a lot of crops. There's a bit of frost licking through of big areas as well, which was we sort of new, but we didn't realise the extent of it. But, you know, the upside is the grain quality in a lot of cases is quite good. And, you know, we know we sort of got a bit of an idea of why that's happened. So, you know, that's a positive thing. So as far as dollars per tonne, there's some good stories as well. Today is World Fisheries Day and over half of all wild-caught fish in Australia are certified to the Marine Stewardship Council Sustainable Fisheries Standard. The Marine Stewardship Council, or MSC, is an international not-for-profit organisation which sets globally recognised standards for sustainable fishing and the seafood supply chain. Using today to recognise sustainable fishing, the Council has launched its inaugural report, looking at two decades of progress in Australian fisheries since 
since the year 2000. Anne Gabrielle is the MSC Director covering Australia, New Zealand and Singapore and she says the report shares the success stories from Australia. The first fishery in the entire world that was MSC certified was the Western Rock Lobster Fishery in WA and in the last few decades they've successfully maintained their certification which is a exemplary effort on their part. One of the things they've done out of many innovations is for example they've modified their pots and their traps with what they call a sea lion exclusion device. So that sea lion exclusion device is just make sure juvenile sea lions, for example, are not being trapped. And so we've got lots of examples like this that showcase in the report, which we hope brings to life the meaningful changes that we're seeing being contributed by the industry on our Australian waters. To the top end now, where mangoes from the Northern Territory have been exported to Los Angeles and are selling for $9 US each, which is nearly 14 Aussie dollars for each mango. Scott Ledger is a veteran of the mango industry and the supply chain advisor for Mandaloo Mangoes. He's in LA at the moment watching R2E2 mangoes arrive and says, despite the long journey, they're looking and tasting great. They are, they are looking fabulous and they're tasting delicious. They were basically picked two weeks ago. Uh, so the retailers are very enthusiastic about it. So Gelson's Markets, we've been supplying for five or six seasons. So the uh, produce managers um, know know our mangoes and they just love them. Uh, they just uh, love the, the, the colour, the size and, and the flavour. And I hope the US celebrities in LA who can afford $14 for a mango enjoy them. And that wraps up Rural News. Yeah, $14 a mango almost sounds a little bit much for me, but maybe that just shows you how good we have it in Australia with the price of produce. Thank you very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News for you this lunchtime. Let's go just across the border here on the Victorian country out of southern New South Wales where large protests over water buybacks and the Murray-Darling Basin plan are taking place today in three locations in southern New South Wales, in Daniloquin, Leeton and Griffith. The protest started in Daniloquin about 10 minutes ago and we can go there. Now, Shelley Schooler is one of the protest organisers. Shelley Schooler, welcome to the country out. Thanks, Rory. Great to be here. So the protests have just started. Why are you protesting today? Oh, because uh, the Water Minister is wants to pass a bill through uh, Parliament to remove the protective mechanisms that were put around to protect communities like ours from buybacks uh, because there's better ways to achieve environmental outcomes. The buybacks are the lazy option. Uh, she wants to reintroduce them without protective mechanisms in place and we say that's not acceptable. And why areas like Denny, Deniliquin, that is, Griffith, Leeton, why are these areas the places where these protests are taking place? Well, I think um, they've been the most severely impacted in those first rounds of buybacks and um, I think they were just very motivated to get that message across. Uh, those communities have been reaching out to all manners of politicians to get our, um, our concerns across and it's been turning on deaf ears, so people are rising in the communities. So what does it look like? How many are there today? Oh, look, this was sort of planned like in less than a week and we're estimating we've got at least 700 here and I think that's a bloody good effort considering we've got so many farmers 
on tractors and um, headers and harvesting. I mean, a rain event coming and they need to get that those crops off. But what impresses me the most, um, Warwick, is this is there's business people here, there's community people here that are not farmers and they know that water buybacks impacts whole communities. It's not just farmers. The farmers get the cash and walk away. It's the people left in the communities that, are, that suffer. It's our education. It's our doctors. It's our mechanics. It's the service providers. They're the ones that are most directly impacted by buybacks. Uh, you've got one of those people with you. I'll get you to hand the phone over now. Sam Hall is a real estate agent and delinquent business leader can join you on the country at the protest today. Sam Hall, why did you go there? Oh, Warwick, I've been a Daniloquin local all my life, mate. I was born and bred here. I've either owned or managed a business for the past 20 years, and I've just seen the sickening impacts, you know, that the, the taking of consumptive water or productive water has done to our communities. It's, um, it's decimating the economies. It's decimating the social fabric. You know, I'm a real estate agent. We've got so many empty shops in our CBD. Um, it's almost beyond a joke. And yeah, yeah you doing, said decimating. Taking, you yeah. said you've seen the impacts. Can can you give us some of those granular impacts in in Denilicum? What what has happened over the last decade or so? What's happened is businesses have lost confidence. Okay, because they know that agriculture is at the centre of our economy. We know that when agriculture is full and thriving, when rice is being grown, when there's water to do that, to grow that clean green food, the money flows into our town. Okay, and when that starts being taken away, so does confidence. So what do business owners do? They pack up and look for opportunities at bigger centres. That's just the reality of it. We've seen the migration of good business people go to where they know they've got confidence going forward. When water gets taken out, the confidence erodes. Simple as that. And in terms of Deniliquin and and what you're seeing there, is it buybacks in particular as part of the new basin legislation that concerns you the most? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. At Warwick, I've marched at the Edward River Oval. I've marched in Aubrey. I've been to the Deniliquin Racecourse 10 years ago when Tony Burke himself stood up and said, no more water will be taken from this community. And they have absolutely lied to our communities. And yes, that's what's at the guts of all of this. We have been fed lies and now they're coming back for more. And it is unacceptable. And that's why people are here today sending that message loud and clear. And this comes at the time the Senate's been looking at voting on the legislation to extend the Basin Plan, which includes more buybacks. A number of reports and evidence presented to the Senate inquiry into the legislation said buybacks, while they have an impact on communities, are the most efficient way to get water and the government should prioritise that. Why do you think differently compared to, to those experts that the senators were hearing from? Because those experts, Warwick, come out here for about two days, they walk around and they have a talk to people, they do a few surveys and we never see them again. They're not living here. Now I'm living here and I've lived here all my life and I can tell you it is a different community to what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago and 30 years ago because we are living here and we are feeling the pain. That's why. you can. They can do all the surveys they want, they can grab all the data they want until they live here and feel it like we are, they will never know. But there is with little doubt when our rice mill for example is not running at full capacity from the rice grown by our farmers, this town is completely different. We see the migration of families and business people to bigger centres because they have no confidence. Do you think the politicians that will vote on this legislation, on this extension to the Basin Plan, will watch any or listen to any of your protests today? 
I really hope so, but uh, I must say, <laughs> I must say, I'm not filled with a, a whole amount of optimism, Warwick, because the fact is, like I said, we marched in Albury, we stopped traffic on the bridge over in Albury between uh, Albury and Wodonga. We rallied here many years ago on Edward River Oval. We stopped the traffic. We rallied at the Dinlokan Racecourse all those years ago. And where have we got ourselves? We are still having to fight to keep this water for our food producers. Sam Hall, good so to- I've got to be honest, mate, I'm not filled with a lot of confidence. No, unfortunately. <laughs> I can hear that in your voice. Sam Hall, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warwick. Pleasure, mate. Appreciate you covering our course. That is Sam Hall, a real estate agent and business leader there in Daniloquin, speaking to you on the country hour today. That Daniloquin protest will continue. Uh, it started at midday, so it's just really getting underway now. Griffith as well today, Leeton as well, those protests ongoing. You're listening to the country hour. It is 17 past 12 if you're out there listening have you been to basin protests before do you think they make a difference you can always send us a text 0467 842 i'd also love you to text me if you have or if you use or you have someone using scare guns for birds nearby because it's there's a warning coming to farmers from the epa birds love getting into fruit when it's ripening on trees. Anyone with a backyard garden will know, and obviously the uh, effects can be much greater when it's your livelihood at stake. But Victoria's Environmental Protection Authority is warning farmers and orchardists not to misuse scare guns to frighten birds away from their crops. EPA team leader Reese Irwin says there are regulations about what time of day, how often and where scare guns can be used. Yeah, so EPA Victoria receives um, additional complaints uh, at this period of the year from regarding farmers and orchardists uh, misusing scare guns to frighten birds away from their crops. It does tend to increase quite dramatically at this time of the year as, you know, fruit ripens and birds become more active. You know, the, the messaging around that is, is to ensure that uh, when operating them, they're done in a way that minimises impact to, to residents nearby to these farms and these businesses. And when you say misusing scare guns, what do you mean exactly? How are people using them? Some of the things that we can see is, you know, use of these these guns uh, through, you know, excessive blasting throughout the day. So that might be, you know, before uh, 7am or, or later than sunset where they're really not going to be effective because the birds aren't around. Uh, we might see the scare guns used in a really close proximity to a nearby resident, you know, or we might see just really prolonged and constant use over, you know, many hours of the day, which, you know, can, can impact those nearby residents through that excessive noise and impact their quality of life in their home. We do have a range of fines available to us and, and you know, they, they can range from, you know, a, a, just an official warning right up to, you know, significant fines or, or even criminal prosecutions. Uh, what I would say is generally through uh, scare gun issues, we, we tend to look at education first and that can be through, you know, compliance advice or, or through a written notice which provides direction around, um, you know, the use of these scare guns and making sure it's appropriate. And what are you doing around education Yep, so EPA has um, some noise control guidelines on our website um, which, which provides you know, information around how to use these, these scare guns appropriately and, and some of those guidelines are around you know, ensuring the scare gun 
uh, is the distance between the scare gun and any nearby properties is less than 300 metres. The scare gun, you know, shouldn't be used more than 70 times in a day. And also uh, the scare gun shouldn't be used, you know, before 7am or, or later than sunset. Within those noise control guidelines, we also have some specifics around, you know, alternative options rather than using scare guns, such as, you know, look at, at bird netting or alternative device such as kites, which are shaped like birds of prey, which can be effective as well. That is EPA team leader Reese Irwin speaking there with Elsie Kennedy. You're listening to the Country Hour. Warwick along with you. Let's go to Pakenham now because uh, the Pakenham sale yards, which have been, well, a, a stalwart, I would say, of the Victorian sale yard scene for a very long time, uh, will close next year. The major selling centre, the closest of its kind to Melbourne, and a trailblazer of uh, in amenities it provided to cattle will not continue beyond next year. Managing Director of the Operator of the Sale Yards, Victorian Livestock Exchange, Brian Painter, can join you now. Brian Painter, welcome to the Country Hour. Oh, good afternoon, Warwick. Thanks for having me. Why did you make this decision? Yeah, it's a very important decision, uh, one that wasn't taken lightly, that's for sure. I can assure you of that. Uh, after 25 years, we'll have to close the Pakenham sale yards have been hit with enormous increases in our council rates and our land tax to the extent that we just can't um, run a sale yard out of there. It's just not financially viable. So the only option was to close the doors and um, offer accommodation to our existing agents down here at our sale yards at Leangatha. So when you say enormous taxes and council charges, what are we talking about here? How much were you paying? Well, it's based on land value, obviously. So we had our, our most recent council rates notice and that doubled overnight. And um, the land tax, you know, we'll be paying in excess of $10,000 a week and just on our land tax. So, you know, that equates to over a, over a uh, on an annual basis, that equates to about, well, it, it, even at existing rates, about $5 a head. Uh, in our yard use just for land tax. So it's a cost that just simply can't be can't be passed on to vendors, you know, through the agents. I mean, it's just not sustainable. Was it a hard decision to make looking at the, the finances here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It was a difficult decision to make. I mean, as I said, we've been in existence for 25 years, so those decisions are not easy to make. But the, the decision was clear and it was unanimous that that's the only the only uh, course of action was to was was to sell the sale yards. I mean, we just simply can't uh, vendors, you know, particularly with cattle prices the way they are at the moment. They look at all their costs, and one of them would be our juice coming through a sale yard. So, you know, just to recover the land tax was an additional five dollars a head on yard juice, and that, and that's just not palatable. How how many people does the sale yard employ? Yeah, we've got a a, 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 a valuable uh, workforce at the moment. So and there's there's permanent positions and casual positions, as you can well imagine. So yeah, it could be anywhere between thirty and forty on the books at any one given time. And will those people move to your other operation at Lee and Gather, or are they going to be out of a job when the sale yards close? Yeah, nobody will be out of a job, so we'll be offering um, positions uh, here at Leangatha. Uh, most of our workforce is from is from the Leangatha area, um, so rather than driving up to Pakenham on a Monday, they'll they'll they'll, they'll be hopefully coming here to Leangatha. So, so there won't be a reduction in hours, and in fact, many of many of our employees will find themselves being offered increased 
hours. So, and you mentioned the agents for the agents that were using Pakenham. You will make room for them now at Lee and Gather. Yeah, absolutely critical that we provide facilities and do our absolute best to accommodate the the Pakenham agents and the and the obviously associated throughput here at our Lee and Gather sale yards. And in terms of the uh, the the site, the Pakenham site, how many cattle were going through there per year? Yeah, look at. It, it's um, it, it it varies, but if you if you said if you put a round figure on it, it's about a hundred thousand a year. So you know that dropped to about ninety three thousand last year. The year before it was over a hundred thousand. So you could say you could say round figures a hundred thousand. And so one hundred thousand cattle going there. Are the plans that that additional ca- amount of cattle will go to your operations at Lee and Gather now? Is that the plan? Well, that, that's what we'd like to see. So it's an additional here at Lee and Gather. It's an additional, you know, roughly 2,000 head a week. So, so will you put on an extra sale for that? Yeah, so what, what we're doing now is is obviously having discussions with both Pakenham and Lee and Gather agents to determine exactly the best sale days to have. So it's the best sale days, the type of sale, the days of the week and the weeks the weeks of the year, really, to determine what the best days for our sales will be. So you could imagine that, uh, you know, like hypothetically, you might have a fat sale in a store market each week here at Lean Gather. And so when do you plan for Packetham to close and cease operations? So we announced yesterday that the last sale will be the last um, sale of June 2024. So at the end of June, uh, that last sale, it, it, it'll be the fourth. But we'll, look, I'll, I'll have discussions with the Packenham agents, but if I just looked at the calendar as it stands at the moment, it's the last Thursday in June would be the last sale day. You'll have to get us down there on that day for the country hour too, Brian. That'd be great. Oh, I hope so. Uh, tell us about the site then. What are your plans then for the for the Packenham site? Because I'd imagine you don't want to keep it if you've got to pay all this land tax. Yes, you just simply couldn't keep it, Warwick. So, so we'll have discussions with agents and um, real estate agents in the new years and look at look at the look at the future for the site. But, but it, it is something that we won't hang on to. I mean, we just simply can't um, afford to do that. So, so we'll put some um, we'll put some plans in place in the new year to to um, you know to potentially market the site and, um, and 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 move it on at some point in the future. And then, I was, oh, actually, before that, it must be worth a bit, the, the actual site, if you're paying that much tax on it, right? I'd imagine that would be good for the company to, to sell that land valued at so much. Uh, yeah, look, it, it's yet to be determined exactly what how much it would be sold for, but you're quite right. I mean, let, let's, let's be realistic. It's in a... It's in a it's in a it's in a great spot in the heart of the industrial estate at Pakenham. So so it is going to be worth a substantial figure. But we, we've we've got plans that um, you know we've got uh, we've got plans here at Lean Gather, for example, you know which are going to cost millions of dollars. So we've certainly got we've certainly got places places to invest the uh, the. The, any sale proceeds. So you might make a lot of money, but you got places to spend it already, Brian. Yeah, we've got a few plans in place down here at Lean Gather. We're currently having discussions with council and, and submitting some plans for a, you know, a new um, Lairage holding holding facility and a four bay truck wash and some amenities and a fuel depot. So there's some plans down here. I'm sure the money will be well spent for it.
<laughs> too, too easy. Uh, Brian, uh, I suppose then in terms of the operations of sale yards, do they still have a place in your mind? You're a major sale yard operator. The majority of cattle, though, sold in Australia are now either direct to, to abattoirs or and, and even a lot between farm-to-farm transactions. What is the role of sale yards in Victorian agriculture in your mind? Yeah, I think it plays... Uh, the sale yards play an, an extremely important role, Warwick. I mean, they're the, they're really, they're truly the only um, open, independent um, auction process. So, in terms of setting cattle prices, I mean, I think the sale yards will al- always play a critical role in um, in transacting cattle and setting prices, and and um, you know, playing a really valuable role in the industry and. Not to mention, Warwick, the, the social aspect and the and the community aspect and the the uh, social aspect of you know the sale yards. I mean, it, it'll continue to, to it still does, and it, and it'll, I think it'll always play an important role in the industry. Uh, Brian Painter, it's been great to talk to you and and hear the news. And as you said, it wouldn't have been an easy decision to make in terms of uh, the operations. But when you look at the finances, of course, uh, that is a different story. Thank you very much for coming on and explaining that to us on the program. Yeah, thanks for your time, Warwick. Have a good day. Brian Painter there, the Managing Director of Victorian Livestock Exchange, uh, announcing yesterday that the Pakenham sale yards are set to close uh, June 30, 2024, being really the, the final closure date. So the, the Thursday sale at the end of the financial year will be the likely last sale. I did love this on the text from Sean saying, I was. I remember working at Dandenong Sale Yards when it closed and went to Pakenham. No wonder I feel so old, Sean. You and me both. I remember going to Pakenham Sale Yards thinking it was out of Melbourne. You drive through that part of the world now and it's feels very city to me. Uh, 0467-842-722 if you'd like to send us a text. Some really interesting texts coming in, uh, particularly around the weather. We'll get to those as we go through the afternoon. Right now, though, we better get regional news headlines with Callum Marshall. Good afternoon, Callum. Good afternoon, Warwick. Critically endangered dolphins living in waters off Melbourne and Gippsland contain the highest levels of PFAS chemicals anywhere in the world, according to new research. Scientists from the Marine Mammal Foundation, RMIT and the University of Melbourne found the high concentrations in Victoria's critically endangered Baranan dolphins. PFAS is commonly found in food packaging, firefighting foam and non-stick cookware, and long-term exposure can lead to health problems. Lifeline Loddon Mallee says it is looking to roll out further counselling support across the region within the next 18 months. The local Lifeline covers an area stretching from Mildura to Shepparton and as far south as Gisborne in the Macedon Ranges. Executive Officer Lisa Renato says they are also looking to establish a critical incident response team that can support communities following incidents such as serious road accidents. Victoria's outgoing commissioner for LGBTIQ plus communities says responding to an increase in reports of vilification will be a key issue for his successor. Todd Fernando has been visiting health and local government organisations in Swan Hill to discuss inclusion after last week announcing his intention to stand down as commissioner. Some of the best young footballers in the Goulburn Valley and North East are celebrating after a memorable evening at the 2023 AFL draft in Melbourne last night. Tongala's Harley Reid was selected with the first pick by the West Coast Eagles, while Albury duo Connor O'Sullivan and Phoenix Gothard were drafted by Geelong and GWS with back-to-back picks. 
Wangaratta's Darcy Wilson was drafted by St Kilda and Shepparton United product Oscar Ryan is now a Crow after being picked by Adelaide. The remaining rounds of the draft will be held today. All Night Arts Festival White Night will return to Ballarat next year after touring other regional locations for the past four years. The event will feature illuminations, projections, music, dance and interactive works on June 1st. White Night was held in Ballarat from 2017 to 2019, attracting tens of thousands of people to the CBD. It has since been held in Bendigo, Geelong and Shepparton. And that's the latest in news. For more, you can visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks for that, Callum. Callum Marshall there with regional news headlines. Uh, about to head to the Weather Bureau. Many of your texts coming in for personalised weather reports when there's some rain around at this time of year. For sure, there will be plenty of questions relating to weather. Uh, this one, a few of your texts though, before that. Water rights, Packenham, thought you crossed your mind that farming's an expensive hobby crippled by bureaucracy and city vote influence, corporate profit slash development matters more and it's only going to get worse. Uh, a little hypocritical to talk about the social aspect of sale yards whilst announcing the closure of Packenham, says another text. Brett says, would someone put to the bloke from the EPA that the birds around most farms don't wear watches or work union hours? Typical city comment, says Brett. Land taxes, rates. Now I understand why people needed Robin Hood, says another text message as well. Uh, Gary says, those who advocate buybacks, uh, don't live in affected communities. It's typical not-in-my-backyard scenario. No policy that seriously and unnecessarily impacts Tanya Plipersek's electorate could be considered, but it seems okay to destroy livelihoods in rural communities. A sad reflection on today's political landscape, says Gary in Daniloquin. And then there's also this one, though, that says, so the community in Daniloquin suffered in the last 10 years, according to the real estate agent. Liberals and nationals were in charge for the majority of that time, so I guess that makes them most responsible rather than the current minister. Uh, to that texter, I have been at Tokenwall protests where they were throwing effigies of David Littleproud into the river. So uh, Liberal National Ministers <laughs> had plenty of protests aimed at them too from that community. On the weather front, couple of quick texts before we go to the Weather Bureau. G'day, Was, can you please ask the weather person about rain around the Ballarat area in this coming event? And Bazza says, hi, Was, can you ask when we expect rain in the Portland southwest area, please? Our hay is all on the ground. Bazza, love that bit of information. And we didn't ask much about the southwest yesterday, so we will do that today. Stephanie Miles is back. She knows the questions are coming her way. Senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Warwick. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, should we just get into it? How are we looking today and where's <laughs> the rain going to fall? Sure. Okay. Well, I guess if we're just going to get straight into it today, looking, um, look, everything's starting to come a little unsettled this afternoon. There's a couple of clouds that are starting to bubbling up in the north and the east, uh, but the southwest remaining quite cloudy and a little bit more um, benign down there. But yeah, look, we've got some showers and thunderstorms starting to develop in the far eastern parts of the state, mostly over the East Gippsland at the moment, and just one cell that's just north of uh, Mount Bore. But yeah, look, for the rest of the day, we're expecting those thunderstorms to continue to develop and really be over those central and eastern parts of the states today. But in terms of the week ahead, we're expecting quite an unsettled week. Wednesday, Thursday will be a little bit uh, calmer. There's not as much going on. Those showers are going to be contract or, sorry, stick to mostly on and south of the ranges. But it's from Friday onwards that I'm sure everyone's got their keen eye, uh, you know, directed towards those days. But, yeah, look, in terms of rainfall on Friday and Saturday, 
on Friday. We are expecting the showers to be in the northwestern parts of the state. They'll be over the Mallee and the Wimmera. A difference to yesterday and what we're thinking um, with the rainfall totals work is that yesterday we had a little bit less confidence on where those heaviest falls were going to fall on the, both the Friday and the Saturday. But for those of uh, the... The rest of the people up in the northwestern parts of the state were expecting over the Mallee, the Wimmera and the Northern Country to get quite a lot of rainfall on the Friday. If you kind of just draw a line from, I guess, not quite east-west, but a little bit more northeast to southwest, we're expecting bands of rain to be migrating from the northwestern part of the state and moving southeastwards throughout the Friday and Saturday. So most of those... Con- uh, Rainfall totals will really concentrate in those lines, the bands that are moving across the state. But, yeah, look, on Friday, mostly in our northwestern parts and in um, kind of the north-central area as well. And then by Saturday, pretty much more widespread over the whole of the state with higher falls over the eastern ranges and the southwest. And then by Sunday, most of that rainfall will be contracting eastwards and sticking over our eastern parts. And again on Monday, similar as well, but a little less in that rainfall work. So there's a bit of an overview of where the rainfall is going to be, but I'm sure you're about to ask me about rainfall amounts. <laughs> when the storm's going, when is the storm going to hit, <laughs> says Tim in southwest Victoria. I've got canola down. Uh, can, you, can you give you, give Tim an idea? Yeah, sure. So for the southwest, I would be expecting both today, tomorrow and Thursday to remain quite dry. So we're expecting the showers in the southwest from Friday onwards. Uh, and most of them are going to be falling after Friday on the Saturday and then clearing off uh, a little bit on the Sunday, but mostly by Monday be dry again. But in terms of those rainfall across the state... Yeah, here we go. See, I didn't want to ask that straight away to be predictable, Stephanie. But yes, <laughs> rainfall totals, what are we looking we at? We just want to give everyone what they want to hear, Warwick. No worries. <laughs> Uh, Look, for today, just in those thunderstorms in the eastern and central parts, we're expecting around the 2 to 10 millimetres, a little bit higher in thunderstorms, up to about 10 to 20 mil. Wednesday, Thursday, like we said, not expecting all that much in the rainfall totals on and south of the ranges. But by Friday, in that northwestern part, we're expecting anywhere between 15, sorry, 5 to 15 millimetres. In the thunderstorms, a little bit more, 15 to 25 millimetres. And then on Saturday, I would expect more of a widespread 2 to 10 millimetres over the whole state increasing a little bit to about the 10 to 20 over the ranges and parts of the southwest as well. And then any thunderstorms that come through, upping that again to the 20 to 45 millimetres. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, we're expecting more around the 2 to 8 millimetres. If there is any thunderstorms, a little bit again in the 15 to 20 millimetres. But from Sunday onwards, like we said, it's starting to uh, contract a little bit further eastwards and die down in those amounts. And uh, I've got another question because everyone wants a personalised report. How about Elmore? How are they looking this week? Plenty of hay going down there and crops oh, coming off. Could you please remind me where Elmore uh, is? Uh, sort of Sorry. between Bendigo and Shepparton, northern country, east, oh, east of Bendigo. Mm. Yeah, cool. So for the northern country and Elmore in particular, the amounts we're expecting on the Friday to be anywhere between the... Oh, five to eight millimetres, higher again in those thunderstorms, up to about 20 millimetres. And then on the Saturday, again, anywhere between the 10 to 15 millimetres and higher again in thunderstorms, up to about 25 or 30 millimetres, if you're lucky, with the highest falls. But, yeah, look, it's going to be pretty widespread across the state. So everyone, please get on the apps and on the website, pick out your spot, get on Medi. We'll be able to uh, have some more tailored amounts for those places. But, yeah, look, rainfall on the way, Warwick. Everyone's listening to you this week. Stephanie, thank you very much for the update. Uh, it's no. always much appreciated. 
Oh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us. We'll speak to you guys tomorrow. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology with the forecast there. A couple more sale yard texts. I remember working at the old Newmarket sale yards in recent times. I've sent a consignment of cattle from the Ballarat area to Pakenham, says Peter, an old stock agent. That's it. See, that's the amazing thing, Peter. My family farm operation was north of Melbourne, we're around the Broadford area. We'd sent cattle to Pakenham on a colleague of mine in the Yarra Valley. That sent cattle to Pakenham obviously has a big history to a lot of those areas around the outskirts and beyond of Melbourne too. So it's interesting that that will be closing next year. Uh, uh, another text coming in saying we used to, my family used to send dairy cattle to Dandenong in the late 50s. How things have changed, said Chris. Love that, Chris. Thank you very much. And we're talking about protests to do with a base and Anthony at Yalka. Anthony, you might be mean to me sometimes on the text, but I still love your inputs in the program, mate. Keep them coming. 0467-842-722 if you want to send a text. Uh, Let's talk dairy right now, though, on the Country Hour because big things happening in dairy as well. A new leader and a new leadership team. The test is now on to see if the traditional dairy lobby in Victoria can survive after mass resignations and the creation of a rival dairy group. Earlier this year, most of the leadership of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria resigned, angry at the leadership and resources from parent organisation, the Victorian Farmers Federation. They started a new group called Dairy Farmers Victoria, but after elections of an entirely new leadership team, the man who stayed and didn't resign from the UDV, is now its president. Bernie Free can join you now to talk about the results of those elections. Bernie Free, welcome. Thanks, Warwick. It's good to be here. And congratulations. What does it mean to you to be UDV president? Uh, What does it mean to me? It means to me that I've got a lot more work to do than what uh, I had a few weeks ago. Up for the challenge. Be interesting. Got a lot to learn in a very short space of time with a lot uh, going on around dairy and agriculture in general. So there is now a UDV leadership team, right, after the previous team, apart from yourself and Robert Campbell, resigned. Um, How extensive is this team now? You at president, how many other representatives are there? We've got five representatives at the moment. We've got two in Western Victoria, two in Northern Victoria and one in Gippsland. We need to find another person in Gippsland and we need to uh, work out how we're going to put in a vice president. Um, so there was no go. nominations for vice president? Uh, vice president wasn't up for nominations because I was still vice president. So, yeah, just to be a little bit complicated about the whole system. So do you know if there is dairy farmers that are interested in becoming vice president of the UDV? I hope there are. I haven't had anybody show any interest to me personally, but I hope there is some someone or two or three people out there that would uh, put their hand up for the job. And so effectively, just for me to be clear, there, there are two vacancies still in the UDV leadership team, Vice President and another Gippsland representative. Yes, yes. The majority of the leadership of the United Dairy Farmers have resigned and formed a rival dairy lobby group. You have stepped into the fray. You have now become president. What are your plans for the UDV going forward? Uh, we will continue to advocate for for our members that are dairy farmers. Um, we've got a lot to do with the uh, animal welfare legislation that's coming in Victoria. We need to keep on uh, 
working on the carbon side of uh, of the po- politics of that and make sure that that's for the best interests of uh, farmers and dairy farmers. And we've got to keep in mind that uh, dairy farmers produce food first and foremost and if we can help the environment and the rest of the community by reducing carbon or whatever, well, we need to look at that. But first and foremost, we feed feed the community. Do you have faith from the the VFF side of things, which the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria are still affiliated with, you will get the resources you need to do that? Um, well, we just have to get the resources to to achieve what we need to achieve. And and if we if we can advocate and show that we need more resources, there shouldn't be a reason why we can't get more resources to achieve an outcome for dairy. That's why the previous leadership team resigned, though. Yeah, they didn't get. The, they didn't feel they had the support of the VFF. Um, yes, that's that's what they that's what they advocate. That's what their position was. I I personally didn't go with them because I don't think that they they left every stone unturned in their ability to achieve what we need to achieve in in the in the VFF, which is unity. Um, amongst all commodities when we're fighting for the same thing and when we're fighting for a uh, specific industry um, objective, well, we we do it within the UDV. How and, will and you succeed a, where they couldn't? Um, well, we we need to prove that the members, what the members want, we need to show what what the members are actually telling us and... And we need to go out and find out what their views are so that we have that information to pass on to the VFF hierarchy to prove that what we want is is what dairy farmers want. So you've now got a situation in Victoria where there's two rival dairy farmer levy-paying organisations advocating for dairy farmers. Who has more members, your organisation or the new one, Dairy Farmers Victoria? My understanding is that ours has a lot more members than they do. And do you think that will still be the case in, say, 12 months' time? That's my objective. (laughs) Uh, I suppose, Bernie, then, just to finish off, Bernie Free is with you, the new president of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria. What is your message to dairy farmers listening today about your organisation and your plan for it in the future? The plan for it in the future is to listen to dairy farmers and to communicate with dairy farmers about what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve. And we need to communicate back to our members about the requests that they have that we can't actually achieve or we don't achieve. So whether we whether we get a success or a failure on what they want, we actually need to communicate back to the farmers and tell them that, well, we, we couldn't achieve that and this is why we couldn't achieve it. And if we do achieve something, we need to communicate that back to the farmers and tell them that we did achieve it and and why we did achieve it so that farmers start to understand how advocacy works and how sometimes you get half of what you want, sometimes you get all of what you want and sometimes politicians just won't listen to you because of other influences that they have that are pushing and pulling them as well. Do you have any plans to meet with the Agriculture Minister or other sort of key figures in agriculture in Victoria? I would like to. We're, um, we're just about to uh, have a meeting today with the uh, UDV Policy Council and um, we'll go from there.
Well, good luck in the role. Congratulations on uh, achieving it. And thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thanks for the time, Warwick. Bernie Free, UDV President, United Dairy Farmers of Victoria President, no Vice President, as you've just heard. Gippsland uh, representative is uh, Jasmine Nebo. Northern Victorian representatives are Bridget Goulding and Greg Brooks. Southwest Regional representatives are Robert Campbell, another member of the Policy Council who stayed with Bernie Free, the only two after the mass resignations. And the other member in the Southwest is Harper Kilpatrick. Uh, you can tell me how you feel about that. Actually, I wish I saw this text early, but I think I got to it uh, anyway, saying, Hi, Was, uh, can you ask, I'm a young dairy farmer, why would I sign up to UDV or VFF if all they do is fight and no longer lobby and no lobbying gets done? Is a text message on the line there, 0467 842 722. Uh, on Pakenham, a couple of texts as a retired agent. I've seen Newmarket, Dandenong, now Pakenham close. Sold stock at all these centres as well as numerous country yards as well, says Kevin from Bort. Love that, uh, Kevin. Thank you very much from that. Neil and Bendigo says Pakenham and sale yards would be worth tens of millions of dollars. Uh, that The reason being sold, owners realising an asset asset not much else well we did get to that Neil and they did say they were standing to make quite a lot of money off that but also couldn't afford the costs of running land worth so much money uh, with the taxes associated with it as well keep those texts coming 0467 842 722 we'll get to that Let's talk land care right now, though, on the country. Our Land Care Victoria fears without ongoing state government funding, the environmental organisation could lose 90 paid jobs by 2025. The facilitator slash coordinator program provides part-time paid positions for land care groups to organise projects, working with more than 60,000 volunteers statewide. Jane Carney is the chair of Land Care Victoria and says they want funding security going forward. So the Landcare program is on a four-year cycle and it's uh, due to come back up again in the next budget. So we, we have received notification that we'll have a 12-month extension on the current contract, but we don't know what's going to happen after that date. And that's what we're most concerned about. We've got 80 facilitators and 10 regional Landcare coordinators placed in the Landcare community working with grassroots Landcarers around the state um, and, you know, they support around 60,000 volunteers um, and, you know, the, the contribution that that brings to uh, the environmental outcomes, um, you know, equates to about 51,000 days of work or $19.5 million in voluntary contribution. So we're really keen to ensure that the land care funding is maintained, actually enhanced, uh, and that there's some security for um, the existing 80 facilitators and 10 regional land care coordinators, but, and ultimately we'd like to see that number doubled. I guess in terms of your overall funding, what percentage does it make up? Is it quite a substantial amount or, yeah, how significant is it? Oh, look, it's incredibly significant. You know, our land care groups and networks are, are really proactive in, in bringing in uh, funding from other sources, so both uh, through federal grant opportunities and state grant opportunities, um, and they're assisted through that to do that by the facilitators themselves. Um, so I think you know what you could say is that the facilitators, uh, the investment in facilitators, is then leveraged 
uh, tenfold in the funding that comes in. But without that facilitator program, uh, I think we would find it very, very difficult to to really uh, do the work on ground that we've been doing. So if this funding is not renewed, you would lose that facilitator program? Uh, The potential is there, yes, uh, for it to be either reduced um, and lost entirely. We we don't know. Um, What we would like to see is some real security around the program. Um, We're investing, as uh, is the department, in the uh, intellectual property that's being held by those facilitators and the RLC. You know, we'd hate to lose that from the environment portfolio and from the Landcare community. What does the facilitator program do? So um, the 80 facilitators are all... Uh, working with a regional land care network. Um, a land care network can comprise of many groups. It might be six, it might be um, 20. Uh, they assist all of those group members to apply for grants, to set the strategic agenda. Uh, they organise events, field days. Um, they share a lot of knowledge uh, and they just assist members to coordinate and organise themselves to be really proactive and effective. Are they paid positions? Yes, they are paid. Most, uh, they're part-time. It varies slightly, but on average, they're probably about three days a week. But, you know, that poses problems in itself. Um, Facilitators struggle at times to, to be able to apply for house loans because of the nature of their contracts. Uh, and also because of the part-time funding. So we, we'd love to be able to offer our facilitators full-time employment where that's wanted and also just that security to know that um, it is ongoing into the future. Why are you worried about the funding not being renewed this time round? You said every few years you have to apply to have it renewed. What are, What is it about this time that makes you worried? Oh, I think, you know, the economic situation at the moment um, means that we've all got to be very proactive in ensuring that what that our services are the most important or the most effective on ground. I mean, it's value for money. Um, we need to prove that to the government. We know we can. We know for every facilitator uh, dollar that goes into that program, there's a $7 return. Um, we'll be competing with all uh, both other organisations within the environmental sector, but also um, industry generally, so health, transport, whatever. Um, So we need to be able to convince government that their dollars are well spent on the Landcare program. So are there any other avenues of funding that Landcare receives other than through the government? Look, they do. Um, we do receive other funding, but again, um, most of that funding comes in the form of support for projects. Now, the design and development and um, management of most of those pro- projects um, is developed with the facilitators. So you take the facilitators out of the system, um, you know, the amount of projects that will be done around the state will be drastically reduced. That's Jane Carney, who is a cattle farmer from Mudjigonga and chair of Landcare Victoria. She was speaking there with Annie Brown. To market, to market, we'll start with the sheep and lambs as we commonly do these days. Let's go to Ballarat and Shiana Lamb. 
Good afternoon. Lamb supply jumped by 15,000, with 45,800 drawn for. Quality again improved over the yarding, ranging from plain to very good. A portion of the yarding were lambs showing signs of dryness in their skins and lacking finish. All the usual buying group attended with extra competition from store buyers. The market opened stronger but was erratic throughout the sale, with cheaper sales and then some sales to $15 a head dearer to a week ago, with the fresh lambs with good weight and cover gaining the most interest. Lambs back to the paddock selling to eight stronger. Light lambs to the trade sold to six better. Medium trade were to seven stronger and heavy trade sold to 10 dearer. Heavy export weights were in limited supply and sold seven to $13 a head dearer. Lambs back to the paddock made 14 to $90 for the lighter weights and 90 to 137 for the lambs over 18 kilos. There are still three agents to sell the remainder of their lambs and 11,000 sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. You're going to be busy for some time yet. Thank you very much for that, Shiona. Let's go to Wodonga Cattle now and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Just over 1,400 cattle sold. The sales dynamics changed this week with strong competition through all classes. The spotlight was on cows and bullocks. Prices jumped 25 cents for heavy cows. They ranged from 190 to 220. Bullocks were in high demand and saw a 15 cent leap, captivating several companies along the way. They fetched 190 to 240. The momentum continued as heavy steers surged 20 cents, reaching 212 to 225. Yet another standout was feeder steers as feeder steers engaged in strong competition with processors, lifting prices by 40 cents to average 2.23. And let's not forget the veal. They bounced 30 cents with top performers ranging from 2.09 to 2.70 cents. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Lucky last on the market run today is Nicole Varley at Shepparton. Good afternoon. We had 905 exports, 335 trade cattle. Prices lifted across most grades of stock. Feedlotters and restockers were more active, which helped put a flaw in the price of some of the plainer lines of cattle. Frisian steers took the centre stage, as there were numerous pens of medium and heavy-weighted bullocks. The beef cow numbers were subdued, however quality was good. The finished sea-muscled steers numbers were tight, but there was more activity on them this sale. Beef cow prices jumped by 10 to 20 cents and the dried-off heavy Frisian cows also six cents better. In the trade section, quality was mixed. Store buyers and feedlotters competed against the processors on some of the lines, which helped lift the trade cattle prices by five to 15 cents, which is more evident on the planter yielding heifers. There were very few light-weighted cattle on offer. The vealers ranged from 185 to 260, to average around 230, yielding steers to the trade 206 to 240, averaging 220, yielding heifer portion 175 to 226. The ground steers 207 to 225, 400 to 500 kilos, and the dairy portion 124 to 182. This is Nicole Valley from Shepparton. Thank you very much for that, Nicole. Joel has a great plug for our podcast on the text saying, Warwick, could you please cover the newly proposed animal welfare laws that the Victorian government plans to enforce, particularly uh, the disgraceful act of locking farmers and agricultural stakeholders, his words, not mine, from having any input whatsoever. There are a lot of angry, anxious livestock farmers in Victoria that need to be aware of what the Victorian government is doing, says Joel in Rutherglen. Joel, we did that. We spoke about it Wednesday last week. And if you want to listen to how we covered that, you can download the Victorian Country Hour podcast wherever you get a podcast or in the ABC Listen app. Wednesday last week, the Country Hour has got a picture of Scott Young as the photo of the podcast. Click on that one. 
and you'll be able to listen to that. And of course, when more detail comes out in that bill and we actually get the information from government, we will be speaking about it a lot more then. We know that is important for a lot of you to be speaking about. Thank you for all of your texts and memories of sale yards today and also what you're doing in light of the weather on the way. Catch you tomorrow. It's one o'clock. It's one o'clock.